Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive from home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And we're starting to hear a, a little bit of buzz about what the return to play might look like. I guess not totally new, but, but at least a little momentum behind kind of this 2014 resumption idea. Yeah, I mean, getting a little bit of insight uh, yesterday for or as of uh, Wednesday evening, talking about how a... 2014 playoff may work and if we're going to have basically the top four teams in each conference getting a bye and then you take the remaining teams from the uh from each conference and actually put them in a uh, best of five series is what it seems like um kind of ranking uh you know five versus 12 six versus 11 so on and so forth and you know to be quite honest after seeing how that would look uh, none of those matchups are particularly appealing. I'm not really sure that you're going to get a lot of, uh, you know, excitement from the audience. I like some of those matchups. I don't know. I mean, none of them really like drop like Edmonton, Chicago. Who's going to tune in for that? No, that's Edmonton true. and Chicago. That's it. Uh, you know, it just it it doesn't really seem that great. And then again, you know, to to kind of piggyback off of Dom's article that he put out, it doesn't really do anything for to I guess number one help those teams that were already well ahead and were kind of seated in playoff position it's kind of a weird proposal when you actually see how it's going to play out I mean personally I kind of buy into what Dom's been suggesting which is uh, the higher seated team should actually start each series with a 1-0 series lead yeah, I don't. I don't mind that either. I don't. I think you'd have a hard time uh, actually making that, you know, the case. And we should note you know, this is not official yet. This is, you know, reporting from Elliot Friedman of Sportsnet, kind of uh, about the, um, the the what do we want to call it, the leading proposal or a, um, just one that they've yeah. worked on. Yeah. I mean, but like you know, just going back to these matchups, it's <laughs> Pittsburgh, Montreal. That'll definitely draw some stuff. Carolina, the Rangers, maybe a little bit. I like Carolina Rangers. Islanders, Islanders Florida, no one's going to tune into. Toronto, Columbus, you'll only have Toronto and Columbus tune in. Edmonton, Chicago, Nashville, Arizona, Vancouver, Minnesota, and Calgary, Winnipeg. I mean, not going to lie, there's maybe one or two desirable matchups to watch there. And, and even, you know, in that case, the teams that are five, six, seven, and eight, they're all facing some serious threats, maybe outside of Pittsburgh and Montreal. 
Uh, although everyone seems to be worried about Carey Price getting hot for some reason. Uh, but, you know, all of those teams are potentially like facing the possibility of being upset. And in, and it's a disappointing scenario if I'm, if I'm those teams. Well, I would actually say the team most worried about Carey Price getting hot is actually probably Montreal because I yep. bet they're most Fair worried enough. about their draft situation than anything. But I think kind of the draw of, of this setup, and look, I don't like it either. I, I, Dom had previously suggested like a 20 or a 22 team set up uh, and I personally think the 20 would have been the way to go but given that the league is trying to recoup some money which I cannot fault considering you know that does benefit both the league and the players it may not benefit you know teams per se but when you talk about the two parties who are going to decide this which is the NHL and the NHLPA that benefits both sides because of the revenue and because of what it means for escrow next season for the players so I get that uh, but I think the draw of it if you have that format, is, oh my gosh, is this five seed, you know, Pittsburgh team going to get completely screwed? Because we love drama, and that's what I've missed the most about sports, is the drama and the little petty bickering. So if it happens, I am good with it. (laughs) See, you know, and I'm very much, number one, I think your money point is spot on, because if you look at the difference between 20 and 24, it's including Montreal, New York, and Chicago. Right. Like, you can't drop those cities and be and make a lot of money out of this. So you can very clearly see the money motive between 20 and 24 and even 20 to 22 uh, or 22 to 24 you're seeing uh, you're basically adding Chicago and Montreal. Uh, so two major cities for the NHL to get money out of. The, the problem is like for me, as much as parody is fun and you get like this situation of anyone can win and, and things like that, I think it's almost gone too far in the NHL where the best team doesn't win often enough. And we have basically devalued the importance of something like the President's Trophy, which really, in all honesty, if you go through 82 games and you come out with the best record, you're you're the best team from that season. That's just kind of where I, I stand. And I do think the best team should win a little bit more often than having this playoff series where literally anything can go and and you get these very random, you know, scenarios that kind of turn everything on its head. So, you know, I'm I'm certainly more in favor of something like a 20 team where you're I guess chipping away at some of that extra randomness that's already baked into the playoffs, but I'm probably in the minority with that take, but I would like to see the best team win a little bit more frequently than we currently do. To me, I, I think you are right about that, like broadly, that like the, the team that is basically wins the President's Trophy is the best team from that season. I think you know Premier League soccer is a good example of of, of that, and and it it values the um, you know the eighty two game more than the whatever how many games are played in the playoff for each team at maximum twenty eight. Yeah, yeah, sixteen yeah, to twenty eight, so. something like that. Yeah. That's important. I also kind of like though the. The fact that, like, okay, you can win the president's trophy, but you still got to prove it in these, you know, this four-round tournament. And it's seven games, so it's not as random as, like, the NFL playoffs could be, for example. Or even, you know, I think the baseball playoffs in that first round where you got a best of five can be pretty random. So, I don't know. I I, I, I agree that the 82 game is the better window for judging like the quality of teams. But I kind of like that you have to then go prove it in this, you know, postseason tournament and that that's the champion. I, 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 it's kind of illogical, I guess, but there's something I like about it. 
Yeah, and I could get more behind it, but ever since the NHL made the changes to try and promote these quote-unquote rivalries, the best team from the regular season doesn't necessarily get afforded the best yeah. opportunity to to actually make the Stanley Cup. I mean, you think about having to go through in the Atlantic Division, if you're playing within your division and you've got Toronto, Tampa, and Boston beating each other up, and then you think about the Metro and you've got the same concept of, you know, Carolina and Philly and Pittsburgh and Washington, and you're getting teams squeezed out of that, but those teams have to go through each other as opposed to literally having a seating of one through eight where the best team from the conference gets the worst team from the conference. I mean, you know, you're talking about the one seed in the Atlantic likely being able to be the one seed in the East and they're getting the weakest opposition. And then they get a team that's just had to go through literally a Boston Toronto matchup, which we get every year. So, you know, I, I think I could get more behind the playoff importance if we just went back to a situation where the best team got the best path to the playoffs. And then you kind of tapered it on down. Otherwise, it seems like you're talking about two different things entirely. Like the regular season should be to be its own thing, and we should recognize the value of the President's Trophy. And then the playoffs can just be this other arbitrary tournament that's where nothing really from the regular season matters. And if you want to kind of think about it that way, then fine. But to me, still the President's Trophy is what ultimately I consider to be the most valuable trophy from a given season. I uh, I agree they should go back to one through eight. Um, but I, you know, I, there, I don't know. There's, I, there's something I like about the, the, the playoffs and the Stanley Cup and the, but I agree that there needs to be more built in reward for the, the one seeds. And I think, you know, the, the Boston Toronto thing, that is a rivalry that probably has been enhanced by this format, but I'm not so sure that they wouldn't have met, you know, how many years has it been out? Half of them at least already organically in the old system. Like, it's not like they, they would have not gotten out of the first round or something. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you think about it from Toronto's standpoint, right, they're, they're a very talented team, but every year, no matter how good they finish, if they can't win their division, they know they have to basically play Boston or Tampa to get out. And, and that's got to be an infuriating situation to be in, whereas if you're the three seed, maybe you would get uh, you know, the sixth seed from another division and maybe it's a weaker team that has some more issues. Now, granted, the Metro is quite strong and, and, uh, it may not ultimately play out that way, but I, I do think Toronto knowing that they have to go through that same Boston Tampa hurdle. Well, I don't really care as a Detroit fan. I'm more than happy to see them lose every year. It, it's got to be a, a disappointing situation to be in. And, and if you're a Red Wings fan, kind of thinking forwards, once the Wings are back in the playoffs, if you're not outright the best team in that division, you have a brutal path out of the first round every single time, as opposed to potentially getting a better shot uh, if you went through a true one through eight. Or let's get even wilder, go one through 16. Um, I don't know that anyone's really ever done the math Um you know, for the combination of the two conferences in terms of what travel would look like. Maybe if I get bored of one of these days, I'll actually retroactively go back and calculate the miles. But all that being said, you know, I think 1 through 16 is ultimately the, the right way to go. But nonetheless, I think this whole 2014 playoff, it seems like it's gaining some steam. We're starting to get a little bit more details here. Uh, and so hopefully the, the draft news comes after that. Yeah, that would be nice, uh, certainly, because... Uh... You know, I think that's been the, for Red Wings fans, they're not going to get anything out of 
this if if it's a 24 team return to play it basically just means their season's over and and you're waiting until next season which could be delayed so i think you know for those other teams those other uh, seven teams the draft is kind of going to be the 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 news item that comes out of all of this yeah yeah i think and you know it's like we've said you first had to pin down what the uh, regular season was going to look like, and it seems like there's no regular season. You're just going to go to the playoffs with these 24 teams. And with that being the case, it seems like uh, the the path is paved for there to be some lottery format uh, that is heavily biased towards the top seven teams, which uh, in, in all likelihood should uh, better favor the Red Wings. But obviously we need to wait for more details there. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, speaking of uh, brackets and formats and great teams, we are going to resume our bracket of the best Red Wing, uh, best or most dominant best. Yeah, we'll go with the most dominant since it's yeah. the most dominant week at That's the true. Athletic. So, That's true. You know, we'll talk about it being the most dominant Red Wings team of all time. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, so we, we're going to finish up the modern era side of the bracket today, and we've got teams from four consecutive seasons, the 94, 95, 95, 96, 96, 97, and 97, 98 Red Wings uh, on the docket to talk about today. Do you want to lead us into the uh, first matchup? Yeah, so we're talking about the first matchup, we'll, we'll do the 4-5 matchup. So the four seed being the 96-97 Red Wings Stanley Cup champion team versus the 95-96 Red Wings. And this is kind of a, uh, you know, a killer matchup to think about because the 95-96 Red Wings were, you know, without a doubt, the arguably the most dominant team that the Red Wings have ever fielded. That team set the NHL record with 62 wins, 131 points. Uh, all sorts of records were set that year by that team. I mean, they were utterly dominant when you compare them back to the rest of the league. But ultimately, that team came up short, losing in the Western Conference Finals uh, to the Colorado Avalanche, and ultimately the Claude Lemieux hit sparks uh, the whole rivalry and the rest is history. And so the following season, when you run it back, that Red Wings team... Uh, fell far short of the win mark, coming in with 38 wins, which is substantially less than the 62 from the year prior. But the main difference is they now had that edge, they had the chip on their shoulder, and they go out and they win the Stanley Cup. And so that's that 4-5 matchup there. Uh, so it's certainly not an easy one for the 96-97 wings to be in, but it's a it's a fun one to preview. So running through these rosters really quick, 95-95, you're looking at among the forward group, line one was Larianov, Fedorov, Kozlov. Line two was Bob Airy, Steve Iserman, Darren McCarty. Line three was LaPointe, Primo, Cicerelli. And then line four, Tim Taylor, Chris Draper, Doug Brown. On defense, it was Paul Coffey, Mark Bergevin, Slava Fatisov, Vladimir Konstantinov, Nick Lidstrom, Mike Ramsey. And then in goal, you had Osgood and Vernon in 96-97. It was Tomas Sandstrom, Iserman, McCarty was the first line. Doug Brown, Fedorov, Kozlov on line two. Shanahan, Larianov, Lapointe, Malpe, Draper, Koser. And then on defense, you had Lidstrom, Larry Murphy. That's a big addition. Fatisov, Vladimir Konstantinov, and Aaron Ward, Bob Rouse with the same uh, Vernon Osgood tandem in net. So uh, to me, and, and also 97... Uh, so, so they get Shanahan early in the season via trade, right? That was it wasn't yeah, in the right offseason. before game one. 
So by this, by the time of the brag, like Shanahan is in this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like right before the first game of the season, they make the deal for for Shanahan. So it's basically the last possible minute of the off season there. So he Shanahan runs the whole season with ninety six, ninety seven. Okay, right, right, right. All right. So the big differences then that are jumping out at me out of that are Larry Murphy and Brendan Shanahan, and that might and Joe Koser actually. That might honestly be enough to. Uh, to turn the tide of the series, but like you mentioned, that 95-96 team was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the 95-96 team was pretty good, and, and ultimately you made a lot of changes from this 95-96 team to the 96-97 team, which is why it's a fun matchup. T- you know, typically when you have consecutive year teams, the rosters aren't all that different, but you can see with 95-96, you know, gone are guys like Keith Primo, Dino Cicerelli, Paul Coffey, who had won a Norris Trophy in 94-95, you know, Mark Bergevin is gone. Uh, you know, Mike Ramsey is gone. Bob Berry is gone. Tim Taylor's not playing that much. Uh, so you make a lot of changes, you know, from that 95-96 team to the 96-97 team. They don't actually perform as well in 96-97 until the playoffs. And really, I think that the big difference is, is Brendan Shanahan kind of taking over as a dominant goal scorer. Shanahan put up 46 goals in the 96-97 season. He really gave the Wings that extra bit of toughness up front, as well as that uh, phenomenal goal-scoring capability. Uh, you know, he was obviously a better uh, goal scorer than Dino Cicerelli, who was a great one in his own right, a little bit more physical than Keith Primo in terms of getting to the net. And, and ultimately, the changes on defense as well were huge. You know, taking out Paul Coffey, uh, who, again, phenomenal defenseman, bringing in Larry Murphy and then you know, kind of getting Lidstrom and Murphy a little bit more runtime together. I think that really helped. You also had Konstantinov again, uh, you know, taking another step forward. Konstantinov was fantastic in 95-96. He sets, you know, I think uh, a Red Wings record with a plus-minus of plus 60. Now, you don't really like to talk about plus-minus because it's, it's not really that great of a stat, but plus 60 is certainly an impressive number. Um, basically, every game or, you know, 75% of the games you're playing – uh, your team is coming out plus one goal with you on the ice. Uh, so, you know, that's a that's a huge change. And then, again, you got a little bit more runtime with Mike Vernon. But I think this is a really fun matchup. I think when you're running down the stats, you know, 95-96 scores almost four goals per game, and they give up only 2.2 again. So they're basically winning their games by 1.8 goals per game. That's about the same amount as the Red Wings were losing their games by this year. Uh, to give you that kind of inverse dominance aspect. They also have the second best power play, best penalty kill. And from that simple rating system we introduced last time, this is the highest mark uh, in Red Wings franchise history at 1.64. So really tough team in the 95-96 Red Wings. It is. And they're, the what, the second highest uh, point total in NHL history? Yeah, I mean, they're right behind, I think, the uh 76, 77 Canadians, if I'm remembering correctly, that team won 60 games in 80, uh, yeah, 60 games in an 80 game season. Uh, so they're right, and I think they ended up coming with like 132 points, if my memory is serving me correctly there. So right on that mark. So obviously that, it's an unbelievable team, and certainly by picking against them, you're kind of picking that Lightning is going to strike twice in terms of a team that good getting bounced. But I am going to do it because they're 
when you it, it's not so much just that they won in the playoffs it's that there was a couple of big additions and the fact that you're getting kind of the older wiser version of basically the same roster with a couple of really big additions even though the regular season didn't go the same way I think and this kind of goes against what I know is the the right way to analyze but it's it's the the gut feel of you're getting the same guys, but older and more experienced, and having been through more. Those are the guys I want to take. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, it's not the wrong way to think about it at all. Like, I think it's a reasonable way to go about it. And and Brendan Shanahan ultimately made a huge difference on this team. Um, you know, the interesting piece here is I do think you're getting. Uh, a worse version of Kozlov in 96-97. I don't think he was as effective. If you look at him in 95-96, you know, Slava Kozlov doesn't get talked about enough, but the guy had 36 goals and 73 points in 95-96. Like, he was one of the best scorers on that Red Wings team. And, you know, as a part of the Russian five in 95-96, they were just unbelievable to watch. But I think you get a slightly worse version of him and to be quite honest, I think you get a slightly worse version of Eiserman and a slightly worse version of Fedorov. I think we have to remember that Fedorov in 93-94 is an MVP. He's also a Selkie Trophy winner. 94-95, he's a Selkie Trophy winner. So he's starting to age out of that you know, two-way dominance. He's still an incredibly gifted player at this point. But uh, I think you're getting a little bit worse version of him. At the same time, though, I think you're getting a better version of Nicholas Lidstrom as he's getting better and better each year. I think you're getting better versions of, you know, Vladimir Konstantinov. And then the Larry Murphy for Paul Coffey swap, I think, is a is a big one to, to note as well. Yeah, I mean, my my guess is, and we should probably read the results from last time, the 0102 Red Wings advanced in an absolute rout, 92.7% of the vote against the 0506 Red Wings and the 0708 Red Wings advanced more narrowly, but still by a healthy margin, 57.5% of the vote. I expect this one to kind of mirror the 0102, and I think it probably should more mirror the 0708 margin, but I am going to pick the 96-97 Red Wings. I'll say it's a six-game thing, but we'll see what the fans think. I think they'll probably put it more lopsided than I have it here. Yeah, I think it'll end up more lopsided than it should. I think, you know, if you want to pick a team here, it'd be like 55-45 in one direction. I do think these two teams are very evenly matched. I think you have to remember how good Paul Coffey was. I think you have to remember how good, you know, Primo and Cicerelli and Kozlov were in 95-96 as you're kind of formulating your opinion um, now, obviously, you, you, you get to weigh that in with Shanahan, you know, joining the, the 96-97 team. I'd personally lean, if I'm matching these two teams up against each other, to the 95-96 Red Wings, um, you know, purely from, I think they had more scoring depth up front. I think they had better defensive depth. Um, I mean, you're talking about Nicholas Lidstrom. You know, he played most of the time with Mike Ramsey. He did play some time with Paul Coffey. He did play a little bit with Mark Bergevin, but... You know, you didn't really have that coffee Lidstrom pairing, so you could really roll out coffee on one pair, Konstantinov on one pair, and Lidstrom on one pair, and that's that's tough to beat. So for me, I kind of lean that 95-96, you know, Red Wings team, even though they didn't get the ultimate goal of the Stanley Cup. So we'll kind of see, uh, you know, how the fans vote here. From that standpoint, our lead-in about uh, how the President's Trophy should mean more definitely uh, definitely comes into play here. I mean, it does for me because I think the 95-96, they just, they just wrecked the NHL. I mean, 62 wins is absurd. Uh, you know, we haven't really had a whole lot of teams make a run at it aside from Tampa 
you know, in in the last season, and that's really the the best run at it since the 0506 Red Wings won 58 games, and so. You know, this matters a lot, and I think it is very important just how dominant they were throughout the season, even though they didn't ultimately get their that Stanley Cup goal. All right, so that's that matchup. The other matchup is 94-95 versus 97-98, so clearly a pretty dominant stretch here for the Red Wings if we've got four straight years from that window among our eight greatest of the modern era for the franchise. Uh, the 97-98 Red Wings, that, you know, pretty familiar sounding roster with, with obviously one big difference. Um, line one, Holmstrom, Iserman, McCarty. Line two, Doug Brown, Fedorov, Kozlov. Brendan Shanahan, Larianov, Lapointe. Malpe, Draper, Koser. And then on defense, Lidstrom, Murphy, Fetisov, Anders, Erickson, Jamie Pusher, Bob Rouse. Uh, in goal, it was Osgood and Kevin Hodson. Uh, 94-95, they were rolling out Kozlov, Fedorov, Brown, Ari Iserman, Shepard, Sean Burr, Primo, Cicerelli, Tim Taylor, Draper, McCarty, Coffee Litstrom, Mike Ramsey, Vladimir Konstantinov, Mark Howe, Bob Rouse, Mike Vernon, Chris Osgood. So obviously the two big differences there. 94-95 has Ray Shepard, who was a big-time goal scorer, um, and the 97-98 team does not have Vladimir Konstantinov. Yeah, and obviously that's the that's the huge subtraction yeah. from ninety seven ninety eight. That being said, that ninety seven ninety eight team was supremely motivated. You know, that that was the rallying cry. There was the believe patches. It was it was everything for you know Konstantinov and Sergei Manatsakhanov, who were again both you know critically injured in that uh, limousine accident after the ninety seven finals. And so you know there was that chip on the shoulder for this team. They came out. They played better. They finished, you know, third in the NHL at 44, 23, and 15 for 103 points. So basically nine points better than their prior season. Uh, you know, again, they swept in the, in the playoffs in the Stanley Cup finals. They were able to, to sweep the, um, you know, the Washington Capitals in that season. I, I thought this team was still incredibly, incredibly talented. You're getting your first look at Thomas Holmstrom. Um, you know, and he wasn't what, Thomas Holmstrom is thought of as now. Actually, back in that season, there's a great Scotty Bowman quote uh, where basically he told Holmstrom, if you don't play better, you're going back to Sweden. Uh, and, and so Holmstrom played better very clearly and, and was able to work his way up in the line and, and was able to finish in the playoffs on Eiserman's line with McCarty. And so, you know, I thought this team was, I think when you look at the names, it's not as impressive as some of the other teams in this dominant stretch. And again, the 94 to 98 stretch, I don't think you can really overstate how, how dominant this, this stretch was for the Red Wings. That's why, you know, when the, uh, when you guys at the athletic put out the most dominant teams in Detroit history, you didn't pick a single team. You picked 94 to 98, uh, for the 95 Detroit to 98. So 95 to 98. So, yeah. Eh, sort of. I mean, all of 94, 95 takes place in 95 because of the lockout. So I'm <laughs> going to. I'm going to say that it's, 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 it still counts, but I mean, the stretch is just so good. Uh, but you know, I think the 97 and 18, the, when you're looking at them, just remember there's that chip on their shoulder. They have this belief they're not going to be denied and they go out and they go back to back. Um, so that's, that's just really key when you're thinking about this team. 
Yeah, and 97-98, I think, is the one that NHL.com, yeah, NHL.com put him sixth greatest all time, uh, and that was the highest of any Red Wings team, even above a 102, which is lower on the list. So, um, you know, we're not going to go off of, you know, this the NHL.com ratings here, but I think that means something, especially for, for how they're perceived. And I do think that, you know, for, if, if part of my argument last time was a team that had learned some things from their previous runs, was older, wiser, and, and more motivated. Well, certainly the Vladimir Konstantinov effect plays into that here too. This is still a team that is, you know, in it, in its prime with a lot of its stars, and it's got that emotional, you know, driving fuel to motivate it through. Um, I will take 97-98 because it's just, you know, if my argument last time was one year older, wiser, these guys are like three years older, wiser. So uh, I'm going to take 97-98. It's kind of an emotional argument uh, above a, you know, numbers one but they've got the numbers on their side too here i think yeah i mean they they do you know and they do win that stanley cup now 94 95 uh there's a couple things i want to kind of point out here so one remember it's a lockout shortened year uh but you have the reigning mvp in sergey fedorov so fedorov doesn't win the mvp in 94 95 but he's the reigning mvp from 93 94 this is fedorov at kind of the peak of his powers a uh, truly dominant player. He really carries the Red Wings in the, the lockout season. It's 50 points in 48 games played. Really great year. I think it's also important to illustrate how good Primo and Cicerelli were here. Uh, they're, they're actually, Cicerelli's at 16 goals, 43 points in 48 games. Primo's 15 goals, 42 points, uh, in, in 48 game plays. And then, it's important to talk about how good Paul Coffey is here. So Coffey actually leads this team uh, with 58 points in 48 games played, wins the Norris Trophy. You've got him paired with Nick Lidstrom for a lot of the season. You've also got a very old uh, but still Hall of Famer in Mark Howe. And then you've got Vladimir Konstantinov again starting to, to find his game and find his form. So this 94-95 team... They were extremely good. And, and take note when you look at their playoff record, their playoff record on our card is going to show you 12 and 6. But remember, they were swept in the Stanley Cup finals. So they were actually 12 and 2 heading into the Stanley Cup finals. They had steamrolled every team they had played in the playoffs until for some reason they ran into this weird New Jersey team that, you know, really didn't have any business being in the playoffs. They just barely snuck in. Uh, they were severe underdogs and somehow managed to pull it out against this Detroit team. But this was a really good Detroit team, very dominant Detroit team, another President's Trophy Detroit team here. And they had a lot of scoring depth from Fedorov on the top line to Iserman and Shepard on the second line to, to Primo and Cicerelli down on the third line. Uh, so this was a really, really deep team uh, and a tough one to, to kind of pick against. So you're going 94-95? I got to lean that way. I mean, when you run it down, they're third in goals for, they're second in goals against, second on the power play, second on the penalty kill. They're the top team from that league, and they were utterly dominant until one team managed to take it to them, and that was New Jersey. So I got to lean 94-95 here. Well, what team's all it takes, but uh, I, I do hate being on the rings side of the argument here. That is not the side of things I am usually... Uh, comfortable on when talking about legacy and, and greatest and all that stuff. But in this case, I am going to lean that way. So, but I think this one's, this could be one of the closest matchups in the tournament in my mind. I don't know if the, the voters will see it that way necessarily, but 
I think you're making a very good case here for 94, 95. I'm still going to go 97, 98. So basically what you're trying to make is the, the Patrick Waugh quote where he can't hear you because I've got two rings plugging my ears. Because as yeah. 97, 98, 96, 97. That's right. Although I, I do hear you. I'm just saying it, <laughs> it doesn't get through the diamond filtration system I have guarding my brain. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I think it's a really interesting matchup. You know, again, when you're, when you're voting on this, do not discount, you know, how deep that 94, 95 team was. At the same time, don't discount the chip on the shoulder for the 97, 98 team. But these are the four, five and three, six matchups. I expect them to be a lot closer. Um, than what we saw in the first two rounds of voting. So we'll see. Uh, we'll launch these polls, and uh, you guys will get to decide who moves on. Yep, and I'll, I'll be tweeting them. Prashant, I think, will probably be bumping them out. But I'm at M underscore Boltman. If you don't follow me on Twitter, B-U-L-T-M-A-N. That's where the polls will be. And we definitely would love to ha- uh, hear from as many of you as possible on what you think will happen. Sorry they're on Twitter. I know sometimes people don't like when we do a lot of stuff on Twitter because not everyone is a, a big Twitter user. Unfortunately, that's where I live, so that's where they will be. I'm going to take a quick break right here to tell you about the Black Tux. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you can imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible. Unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day. So we left. What I love about the black tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code WINGS. That's theblacktux.com, code WINGS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Um, we are going to get to a few questions here if you have time real quick, Prashant. Yeah, let's Okay, do great. It. All right, uh, Joe Falzon says, are Rossi and Byfield high risks to run into a Rasmussen situation due to AHL ineligibility if one of those two were to be the Red Wings draft pick whenever the draft happens? Yeah, it's a great question, and the answer is yes in the sense that you would probably not want to return either one of them uh, to the OHL given how dominant they were. I mean, Marco Rossi today was announced as the best player in the OHL. There's no sense in returning him back, um, and Byfield obviously was very dominant. Now, Byfield is a, almost a full year younger than Rossi, uh, Rossi being a September birthday, Byfield being an August birthday um, in the following year. So you could maybe make a case to, to put Byfield back. That being said, he was already very dominant, one of the 12 best scoring seasons in the last 20 years. So I, I think you are looking at taking them both up to the NHL. That being said, they're both infinitely more prepared for the NHL than Michael Rasmussen was coming out of the draft. Rasmussen, 
Yes, he was 6'6". He was a big kid. He scored well, but he didn't score at the level that Rossi and Byfield scored at. And he wasn't really regarded as the same caliber of prospect as Rossi and Byfield. So I don't know that if you brought both of those guys up, they would struggle to the same degree as Rasmussen. But that being said, we also saw Capocacco go through just one of the most horrific seasons from a, a top two draft pick uh, in recent memory. So, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility, but I do think they both may come up to the NHL, but I think they would both fare better than Rasmussen did. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I think, you know, the obviously you're comparing Rasmussen one year removed from his draft, right? Because I think that was his age, 19 right, season. Right, right, right. Yep. Um, but I would agree. I, I think that they're both guys who I think you could see a situation where you're making a less than ideal choice one way or the other there with, with where what league you're going to place him in. With Rossi, I think you have to put him in the NHL. I don't think he's going to get anything out of putting up 190 points in the OHL next year. Um, and maybe, in fact, he doesn't progress to that level just because he's hit this kind of point where there's really nowhere to go um, up remaining. You know, So I, I think you put him in, in the NHL if, if you're the team that drafts Marco Rossi. Byfield, I think you've got a little more leeway if you wanted to send him back one more year. He had a dominant per game season for sure, but, um, you know, he's still going to be just turning 18 before the start of the season and he hasn't hit 100 points yet in an OHL season technically. You know, part of that because of some missed time, but, you know, I think there's still kind of room if you wanted to do that. My personal option, I think probably probably would be to advance him to the NHL, but I, I think there's a there's a decent development argument for letting him um you know really tear up that league next year if you wanted to. Um so whichever team drafts those two guys is gonna have to make that decision though. Yeah, I mean and it's gonna be a tough decision, but ultimately I don't think that's a decision or or I should say I don't think that's a factor in swaying a team one way or another. Like I don't think I you're gonna reach over to Europe um, to take, you know, a Stutzla, a Raymond, or a Holtz on the basis of this factor. So just important to kind of put that out there. No, and, and like, it, you're drafting the, the player who you think is going to be the best. And I think, you know, it, it, it still matters how, what their development trajectory is going to look like. But I think if you got a good development staff, then, you know, you trust them that you're going to, they're going to be able to advance this player no matter what league they're in. I mean, Antti Tuomisto was in a much tougher situation than either of these guys last year. Uh, and the Red Wings made it work for him. And I would think most teams could do the same. Yep. Completely agree. All right. Um, let's see. There's a good one in here also about Rasmussen. Uh, okay, so Todd Timmer says 10 goals and, and, or 8 goals and 10 assists in 68 games as a rookie, or 5 goals and 16 assists in 70 games as a 36 year old. Who makes a better case to play second line center for the Red Wings in 2021? Michael Rasmussen or Valtteri Filppula? It's a, it's a great question because obviously Filppula didn't have a strong season. He's, and, and that's kind of expected at, at his age right now that, you're not going to get second-line center uh, minutes out of him. Or I should say you're not going to get second-line center production out of him. You're not even going to get third-line center production out of him. Um, so I think on the basis of Rasmussen versus Filppula, sure, you could you could make that. But the points argument really only gets at the offensive side of the game. And I think Rasmussen's struggles were, one, from a defensive standpoint, just finding his assignment, being good in the face-off circle. He didn't really play much center 
um, when he was up. He was playing a lot on the wing, again, getting him accustomed to the pace of the game. And then, again, playing center, learning his positioning down the middle, where he's supposed to be in the offensive zone, things like that. I think you could put him in the situation. He may score a little bit more than Philpola did, but is it a situation where he would be able to handle it such that it would be beneficial to his development? That's a that's a different story, and that's where I kind of favor going after a guy like Sam Gagne and bringing him back to hold down the fort and on the second line um, to buy yourself some more development time for a guy like Rasmussen. Uh, I do think he is capable of playing center in the NHL, but I don't know if he's capable of going from you know, first-line AHL center to second-line NHL center when he had so much missed time uh, to really develop this year in the AHL. I think he's better served kind of bringing him along a little bit more slowly and not necessarily burning his confidence early. I would agree. And I also think, you know, the the points indicate kind of an offensive uh, advantage there for Rasmussen, uh, even though, you know, Technically, Philpola has more points there, but it was kind of two years ago for Rasmussen. He's made a little bit of progress. Um, you can infer some advantage as a younger player. There also, you know, th- there's context to those points. Rasmussen is a special teams beast, uh, especially on the power play at the net front. When you're talking about the second line center, what you're really saying is Philip Zadina's center. And one of those two guys, I think, is probably the, and I think Rasmussen c- can be a good, um, you know, center in terms of making the right pass and all that stuff, especially around the net. But I think when you're talking about pushing the puck up ice and, and, and getting the, getting it to Philip Zadina in the right spots and Robbie Fabry in the right spots, potentially. Um, I think Philpola is the player who is better suited to do that at this point. I think in an ideal world, by the end of the year, if if you're looking for a second line center, it's either someone else other than those two who is like a free agent or an internal like Sam Gagne type thing, or it's Joe Valeno by the end of the season, and you've got Rasmussen kind of holding down that third line. Ultimately, I think that's the ideal for the Red Wings as a franchise is to have Rasmussen on the third line as a really strong defensive center who is a beast on the power play too. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. So that's why I kind of cheated and said my answer is neither of yeah. them is really the best option for next year. Yeah, I think year, that's but, fair. Because uh, you really don't want to be putting guys in above their head. But if you are going to put someone above their head, put the veteran who can at least – it's not detrimental to his development in any way because he's not developing anymore. All right, two more quick ones. Uh, Jay Arya says, do you have good reasons why a lafreniere valeno Zadina line shouldn't be called the Q line and have their faces on the Q line, which is kind of a, like a I guess it's kind of like a above-ground subway in Detroit? Um, no, I don't have a good reason for that. I like the idea, although I will say if they don't get Lafreniere, you could maybe do the same thing for Mantha valeno Zadina if you're really married to having a Q line themed line uh so that could work and then uh, just one quick one for you before we let you go max markovich wants to know when we will have a vaccine uh a long time from now um obviously you have a lot of attention on uh, trying to develop it in this timeline of 18 months has been tossed around but just keep in mind that a lot of the modern day vaccines that are in use took anywhere from two to 28 years to develop so yes you have more attention on uh, COVID-19 and developing a vaccine for it. So that may expedite the timeline a little bit, but there is really no substitute for time when it comes to analyzing the vaccine's effectiveness and safety in a inappropriate population. So I think, 
you know, 18 months maybe seems like a stretch. I'd kind of guess closer to two to three years uh, based on the attention. But all that being said, coronaviruses are, are very tough to, you know, formulate a vaccine for. And it's it's going to be, you know, it's going to be hard work. It's going to be a lot of time spent in the lab. But the good thing is you have people all over the world focused on it. So I can't, I can't really tell you a definite answer, but I'll tell you that with the vaccines we've got now, most of them took anywhere from two to 28 years to, to develop. So it's going to be a little bit. Sorry, we were looking for a definite answer in three words or less. So I'm going to have to take <laughs> away your points on that one. Uh, that is going to do it for us for today. We'll be back at you early next week, continuing, uh, our, our, uh, best Red Wings teams ever bracket and hopefully with a little bit more news. Uh, but I'm no longer, uh, optimistic at, at these, uh, next time we'll have some news proclamations. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Either way, we'll have something fun for you, uh, on Monday. Thanks so much for listening. 